0: Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hills online Sunday morning service. We gather every Sunday morning at 10:30 a.m. both in person and online. Now, in person today, uh, we have our church lunch after church. So, if you're in the area but you're online, you have time to pause this, get down to church. We don't mind if you're late and just hang out with us, have lunch. We'd love to. We'd love to spend time with you. You don't have to bring anything. We have some tacos. It's going to be great. Uh, We are continuing to study the Gospel of Matthew all summer, but we also have other podcasts uh, that are available throughout the week. We have our monthly podcast, Talk About Anything, which is a long-form conversational podcast. We have our weekly uh, Through the Bible 20-Minute Bible Study podcast, and we have our new podcast called Starting Points, uh, which goes one book of the Bible at a time. Uh, Each episode kind of gives a big overview picture of that book of the Bible or that section of the Bible, and it's meant to be a starting point into studying the Word of God for yourself. Now, what kind of connected is today, we want to talk about asking more questions, especially when it comes to studying the Bible. I hope all Christians are students of the Bible. Sadly, I also know that that's not true. The psalmist says, your word I have hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. Uh, The the psalms also say, you know, uh, I will delight in the law of the Lord. I will think about it day and night so that I will be a tree that's planted near a river whose roots run deep and wide and drinks deeply of the good soil and the water nearby and available. Now, I have always grown up in green areas, right? Places like Washington, western Oregon. I lived in England for a time. I, I, I have lived in areas where water is freely available, but this was written in the Middle East, in a dry place, a place where there might not be much vegetation except near the streams and the rivers. I hope we're all students of the Bible. I hope that we are all putting God's Word inside of our hearts and our minds and our souls so that we can grow and deepen and strengthen our faith and strengthen our relationship with God and strengthen our knowledge of His great love for us. And as we study God's Word on our own, individually, I believe it is so essential to ask more questions. Matthew chapter 15, we left off last week in verse 21, says leaving that place, that is uh, the area in the Galilee that Jesus has been interacting with the Pharisees uh, in the previous part of this chapter, leaving that place, he withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman came from that vicinity and came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed and suffering terribly ask more questions. So if I'm studying this on my own, I could just read this and go, oh, okay, well, he left and now he comes and there's a woman asking for something and he's going to heal her. And, you know, you can kind of do a cursory reading and you can get the basic facts. But I believe that as we ask more questions, we will get to the deeper truths. For example, leaving that place. Why did Jesus leave? Because in that place that he had been, he is opposed and rejected. Huh. So Jesus leaves when he's opposed. And we actually, you might remember as we've studied Matthew, this happens multiple times. Uh, He last, uh, not last week, but two weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus returned to the region of the Gennesaret. And the first time he went there, the people said, please leave. We don't want you here. Now Jesus is leaving Canaan, or sorry, Galilee, and he's heading out to this region of Tyre and Sidon. Why? Because he has been opposed in the Galilee. So Jesus leaves when people say, we want you gone. But then he comes back. I think this is interesting. and it's something you'd miss if you didn't ask the questions. Why did Jesus leave? Oh, because he's opposed. Does Jesus come back? Well, we know previously he comes back, and we can read ahead and know he comes back. And maybe you don't read ahead. You just leave that question hanging in your mind. Hey, is he going to come back? But I'm going to spoiler alert. The answer is yes. He goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and if you uh, pause the video and you get out a map or you have, uh, maybe you have a physical Bible and there's maps in the back, uh, you'll find that Tyre and Sidon is a coastal area north of Israel, It's Israel adjacent. It was never part of what would traditionally be thought as the historic kingdom or land of Israel. But it was always close. It was always linked. It was always connected. Uh, You might think of it in the way that Vancouver is part of our region, but it's not in our state. Uh, There there are places that are adjacent, but not connected. And that's kind of what Tyre and Sidon is. So Jesus goes there. And then... It says, a Canaanite woman from the vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon possessed, suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word, so his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. And he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. And he replied, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to dogs. Now, I know that that's a trigger for some people, that he equated a woman with a dog. Can we, for a moment, let's just pause and say, we'll come back to that, okay? Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Let's ask some questions together. So who is this woman? Well, Matthew tells us that she lives in the region of Tyre and Sidon. That's why Mark's gospel says the woman was a Phoenician woman, because that would have been a region considered, you know, dominated by Phoenician culture, um, Eastern Mediterranean uh, ship trading and the whole thing. But Matthew identifies her as Canaanite. There's two ways that that could have been. Either she was actually ethnically Canaanite. That's possible. We know that Herod, the fake king of Israel, was uh, attributed as being a descendant of the Edomites, another ancient culture uh, that had been way back in Israel's history. Was she ath- actually ethnically a Canaanite? Maybe. There, there are certainly places where there are small remnants of ancient cultures and ancient civilizations. Um, and that stretches all over the, the world. Um, you know, I was, uh, I was watching a, a great documentary, a BBC documentary, it was on Amazon. And uh, this guy was traveling the Silk Road from China West and going along and they went to, um, you know, the ancient... Uh, Uh, Turkmenistan uh, empires and, and Kublai Khan and these these fantastic places that had once dominated central Europe and the descendants the remnants of that culture still exist in these isolated villages in what's now modern Turkmenistan they're not a great people or a great power anymore but their descendants ethnically still exist And there are places like that all over the world to this day where remnants of ancient cultures from thousands of years ago still have small pockets. So it is possible that ethnically she's a Canaanite. Now that's an interesting uh, ethnicity to be if you're an Israelite, if you're Jewish, if you're Hebrew. That's who Matthew is primarily writing to. So, Who is this woman? Well, she's not Jewish, and not only is she not Jewish, but Matthew identifies her as being part of an ancient foe, opponent, enemy of the people of Israel, the Canaanites. Why is he doing that? Well, remember, he's writing to a Jewish audience, so he is identifying her as somebody who, in their mind, in their culture, would not deserve the help of Jesus. What does she want? What help does she want? Well, she wants not for herself. She wants freedom, healing for her daughter. Now, we are not told exactly what's going on. It says that she is uh, possessed by a demon and oppressed severely. I've talked about this before. I'll say it again. When it comes to demons and, and demonic activity, I unapologetically believe in the supernatural. I 100% unapologetically believe in the supernatural. And at the same time, I also know that there were things ascribed to the supernatural that were just, you know, anything from cerebral palsy to um, mental health issues to whatever. We don't know exactly what's going on there. And even Matthew does not get specific. He just says that this child is suffering. But we don't know with what. Some other places, he'll say that there was an issue and that somebody was demonically possessed and it manifested itself in a very specific way. Matthew doesn't give us the information. We don't know. But she wants, not for herself, but for her daughter. I don't think anyone would find that an unreasonable request. So she's crying out, Lord, Master, Master, Son of David. She is acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. She has enough knowledge to to acknowledge Jesus, Son of David, not only as Messiah, but as King of Israel. And she calls out, help me. That's what she wants. Now the disciples come to Jesus. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, Uh, verse 23, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. What is it the disciples want? They just want this woman to leave her alone because apparently she's not just crying out to Jesus, but she's going to his disciples. Can you go to your master on my behalf? How many people do that to this day? They have a problem. They need deliverance. There's somebody and they say, can you pray for me? I always say, I can pray with you, but you need to go to God. But people will come to us, Jesus' disciples, and say, I need you to do this. I need you to go to your master for me. And the disciples, actually, this is interesting. I am not an expert in Greek. Now, uh, our brother John Larson, who recently went home to be with the Lord, John, so smart. And John, even in his uh, later years where he, he suffered terribly with dementia, Even with dementia, John read his Bible every morning in ancient Greek. That's a crazy thought, that John Larson was so smart that even while battling dementia, he could speak multiple languages and read his Bible and and understand it in multiple languages. But, you know, I've taken, I took New Testament Greek in undergrad. I took New Testament Greek in grad school. I've taken some ancient Hebrew in grad school. I don't claim to be an expert at all, but I think I know enough to be able to read the experts and get a feel for them. Multiple Bible scholars and commentators that I read said that this uh, verse could better be translated, do what she wants and then send her away. The disciples actually don't have a problem with Jesus helping this woman's daughter. Look, it's a little kid. I know that she's a Canaanite. I know that she's not one of us, but it's a little kid. Like, we could all have mercy on a little kid. Uh, We can show kindness to a child that's suffering. Jesus, she's just really bothering us. Like, she will not leave us alone. Can you do what she wants so then she'll leave us alone? That's why they want—they don't care about, you know, it's not like, oh, Jesus— her daughter is, is so suffering, and it's not compassion that's driving them. It's annoyance that's driving them. Now, that's going to come back into play a little bit later, so let's put a pin in that. Side question. I just said that I knew that, that it, in almost every translation you'll have of the Bible in English, it will say the disciples said, Lord, send her away but plenty of commentators say you could translate it, do what she wants and send her away. Do I need a Bible commentary to understand the Bible? No. I don't believe that for a minute. There are certainly uh, people who say that. Uh, There are a lot of non-Christian groups, cultic groups, false religions who will say that. The very first Christians dealt with this group called the Gnostics, and the Gnostics said, hey, we have secret knowledge. Secret teaching that only we know. And if you don't come to us, you will never understand the gospel. And the apostles said, no way. What we have been given, we have given to everyone else. There is no secret teaching. Jesus didn't leave the apostles some secret message. John was the last of the apostles still alive. And he spent the the last days on earth that he had, the last years on earth he had, fighting against this teaching, saying, hey, I was there. I saw Jesus. I heard Jesus. I physically touched Jesus. I lived with Jesus for three years. And what you are saying is totally untrue. He did not give any of the apostles secret teachings that now only you have. We have told everybody what we have heard, what we have seen, what we know to be true. So I don't believe that Bible commentaries are necessary in our own day. That's one of the claims of the Jehovah's Witnesses, is that you can't really understand the Bible without materials published by the Watchtower Organization. And, and so for you to really fully understand your Bible, you have to read the materials published by us. We reject that. We believe that the Bible speaks clearly all things that people know need to know for salvation. But why is it that I quote Bible commentaries? Well, there's a few reasons. First is, sometimes I will read the Bible and I will ask a question. For example, when I read verse 23, I was preparing for this week's Bible study. I'm reading verse 23 and it says, send her away for she keeps crying after us. I go, that seems kind of weird. That seems kind of, uh, that seems kind of un- uncaring, even for the disciples. And the disciples were not always right, right? Like they, they made mistakes. But this seems a little off. So... I, I just start reading through commentaries, and I came across one commentator who suggested that maybe there was a better way of translating this. Then I said, okay, well, I'm not just going to take one guy's word for it. So I read multiple Bible scholars and multiple Bible commentators so that I could see, is this a kind of a, a wider held view? But I don't think that it would change anything, that I could read this, and I could understand, you know what, the disciples... They weren't perfect, and we can see the difference between before Jesus' resurrection and after, You know, before the Holy Spirit descends on the church and after. We know that God was working in them and changing them, and they needed Jesus, and they needed the work of the Holy Spirit, and they needed all of the things that we need just as much. At the same time, I also recognize that the Bible is written in two primary languages, ancient Hebrew and first century Greek with smatterings of other languages like Aramaic um, thrown in. I recognize that. And I also recognize that some parts of the Bible are incredibly clear and definitive to translate, and some parts it's kind of like, hey, you know, we're trying to work out an expression or, or uh, an idea here, and we are not 100% sure. And part of the transparency, one of the things that I have come to in 20 years of teaching the Bible, in 20 years of, of looking into how we got the Bible as we currently have it. And a couple of years ago, I did a lot of deep dive reading. I really looked into, like, how did we get the Bible? Can we trust it as authoritative? All that stuff. I revisited it again for the first time in about a decade, and I really dug into it. And I feel more confident than ever that the Bible is trustworthy, that the Bible is authoritative, authoritative, that the Bible contains all that humanity needs for salvation from our sins and living life in the godliness, the righteousness that comes from Jesus. But the commentaries can help answer our questions. They can give us some insight into, okay, this particular phrase in Greek or in Hebrew, there's a couple different ways you could take it. The Bible translators chose to go this way. This is an alternative view. And you know what? You can can decide how you want to go with that. Sometimes they fill us in on cultural things that we do not understand. Remember I said put a pin in how Jesus compared the woman to a dog? There is cultural things going on that triggers us. And maybe the commentators can help walk us through. Actually, in their culture, it would be perceived this way. There are things that are insults in one culture that are compliments in another culture. There are things that are horribly profane in one culture that are totally benign in another culture. So I'm thankful for Bible commentators. And you don't have to spend a bunch of money on Bible commentaries. I love studylight.org. It's full of good Bible commentaries. Blue Letter Bible is still a good resource. It's not as good as it used to be, but it's also full of free Bible commentaries enduringword.com is the website of one of my favorite Bible commentators David Guzik all free and available. So I I like Bible commentaries because they help answer our questions. And there's Bible commentaries that are meant for like just kind of like the the average person and then there's ones that are very scholarly and academic and sometimes super pretentious. I was reading one of the really academic ones this last week, and they were using words. I was, like, having to look up in the dictionary, like, that's not a real word. And I was like, the only reason you're using that word is to sound smart. You could have said that word. You could have explained this whole thing far easier if you weren't using these out-of-date words. So they understand there's different types of commentaries, but I think they are helpful in answering our questions. So what do the disciples want? They want, I, I believe they want Jesus to do what the woman wants and then send her away because the woman's annoying her. What about Jesus? He responds, this is interesting. He says, oh, I turned back one page too many. He says, the disciples come and they say, hey, send her away. Do what she wants, for she keeps crying out after us. She is just super annoying. Jesus, can you do something? Verse 24, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Who's he speaking to? Ask more questions. Who's Jesus speaking to? Here he's speaking to the disciples, but the woman hears this, and she comes and she knelt before him and she said, Lord, help me. It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. So twice. First, Jesus is silent. He hears the woman, and then he's silent. So here's a question: Is that normal for Jesus? It's not from everything we have read so far, if you'd never read the Bible before, if you've only been studying the Gospel of Matthew with us over these last weeks and months, this is not normal. And then, instead of responding to her and, and doing a work, because when people come and ask for help, that's Jesus' MO. He's silent. And then he's asked again, and he kind of responds like, I don't know. And then he's asked again, and he responds with a question. Is it right to do this? Oh, okay. So if I'm asking questions, I'm saying, hey, is this normal? How he responded, is this his normal operating procedure? No. And what's going on here? There's two different ways to look at this. And I'm not necessarily advocating for any one. I also think that each of these ways of looking at it makes people uncomfortable for different reasons. Jesus is fully God. I cannot make this more clear, and I think it's something that's becoming more confused in our culture. Jesus is God. God is one. He reveals himself in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Father is equally God as God the Holy Spirit is. God the Holy Spirit is equally God as Jesus is God people will say there's God and Jesus. No, Jesus is God. Usually when people say God, what they're referring to is God the Father. There is one God who reveals himself in three distinct persons. So is Jesus speaking in his divinity and saying, I've been sent to the children of Israel. And then the woman comes and says, Lord, help me. And then he says, is it right to take the children's food and give it to the dogs? And she responds. So it could be that in his his divinity, he is using things that draw her close. Did you notice that nothing he says pushes her away? Nothing he says makes her leave. Everything he says draws her in. It could be, and this is traditionally the way that I have understood it or that I have taught it, is that in his divinity, he is drawing her in. For some people, that makes them uncomfortable because some people are very comfortable with the human Jesus. It's the divine Jesus that they have a hard time with. But let's be honest. And if I'm honest, I often have to process through what the humanity of Jesus means. Several years ago, this is over a decade ago now, I was the worship leader, music director for a church up in Washington, and and it was coming up on Good Friday and Easter, and I, I started to lead a song that focused on the humanity of Jesus on the cross. And man, I'll tell you, I got some pushback. Because the humanity of Jesus made some people in the church really uncomfortable. The divinity of Jesus on the cross they could get behind. The humanity of Jesus on the cross was difficult. So there are some people who the the divinity of Jesus, that he's fully God, is something that's hard for them to wrap their minds around, something that they push back against. And then there's other people and places and times and cultures for whom the humanity of Jesus is the thing that they struggle with. What if the human Jesus doesn't know what to do. I don't think I am in any way lessening Jesus' divinity by asking that question because we know that Jesus limited himself. The book of Philippians talks about how Jesus lowered himself, uh, that he became a little lower than the angels to enter into this world. So what if the fully human part of Jesus did not know what to do? Some people who are, again, more expertise, have more expertise, more understanding of Greek than I do, read this in the Greek, and they see Jesus not talking to anyone but himself. That's possible. What if Jesus is working through what he's supposed to do? Because he had a specific mission to the lost sheep of Israel. And Jesus Avoided mission drift at all costs. Mission drift is this idea that a person or an organization has a stated goal or mission, but over time, they will drift away from it. This happens, you see this in organizations all the time. You know, there's a, a, a business or a nonprofit, it happens in both, but, but they have an original goal, original uh, purpose, and then over time, they start to drift and lose focus, Sometimes uh, a business, you know, their main source of income and, and, and money is through their primary business, but then the president, the CEO, the board, whatever, they're very interested in some side business uh, that's getting a lot of attention, but it doesn't really make the business money. And so then all of a sudden, resources and time and energy start getting put into this side uh, project, and the main business is neglected, and the company begins to Shrink. This happens in nonprofits too. Maybe there is a nonprofit organization, and their goal is, you know, uh, let's say their goal is is feeding hungry kids in the developing world. And then over time, they also start a um, a a, pr- a project doing like micro loans to women in the developing world, which I think is great. I love those programs. Uh, the more I've looked into them, I think they're a great concept. But then, and then they start another project, another project, and then soon they have so much overhead from having to manage all of these projects that they're giving less and less and less to the developing world. And then because they have all this emphasis on other things, and that's where their fundraising goes, their, their original goal of feeding hungry kids is neglected. There's a mission drift. And this happens all the time, you know? What's the purpose? What's our goal? Why are we here? Jesus was laser-focused on doing the mission he had been given, and that was to the lost sheep of Israel. And there were times where he went to people who were Israel-adjacent. You know, the the woman at the well, not Jewish, Samaritan, but the Samaritans were at least half-Jewish. He goes to the Gennesaret, which is not a Jewish area, but there was a Jewish community there. So he's going there. This woman is in no way, shape, or form from the people of Israel. It's outside of his mission. So what if the fully human part of Jesus is wrestling through what he's supposed to do? You know, that he's praying through, he's asking, he's trying to figure it out. Here is an immediate need. Here's something I can do, but it's not within the scope of the mission I've been given. That might sound heartless, but I think it is imperative because what happens if, you know what, Israel at this point is starting to reject him. Israel at this point is starting to say, like, we're pushing back. We're not going to have you. And all of a sudden, the human part of Jesus starts to see people outside of Israel responding to him. And they will. We'll get there. Like, that's the book of Acts. But understand what I'm saying. It's not what he's been given to do. And so he's working this all through. That would make some people really uncomfortable, the idea of Jesus having to work through some things. But I think it's possible. I'm not saying that is what's happening. I'm saying it's possible that that is what's happening. I'm okay with either version because the end result is the same. The woman is drawn in. We'll get to the end results in a a little bit here. But the, the... The idea is that I am working through these things as I'm asking questions. If I just read this and go, okay, a woman comes and asks for help, Uh, Jesus gets a little bit weird, but I'm going to assume that's like a cultural thing, and then I'm just going to keep reading because maybe I find the next chapter more interesting or whatever, and so I'm just going to keep reading. I'm not going to get into these things. That here's a woman who has no connection to the kingdom of God. And she's coming and asking for help. And here are the disciples. They are Jesus' main people and they aren't interested in helping her at all. And if there is any interest in helping her, it's just literally so they could stop being annoyed. And here's Jesus who is either speaking in a unique way that's designed to draw the woman in or he himself is trying to figure out how to work through this. You don't get that if you don't ask questions. Now, She's healed, the daughter's healed, things move on. It says he left there and went along the Sea of Galilee and he went along a mountainside and sat down. Mark's gospel tells us that he goes back not to the Capernaum region where he has been, but he goes back to the Gennesaret area where he's been twice already. The Decapolis, this area of 10 towns or villages that has a Jewish community but is largely Greek culturally and ethnically. And then he sat, went on a mountainside, sat down, great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others, and laid them at his feet. And he healed them, and the people were amazed, and they saw the mute speaking, and the crippled made well, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Why would you praise the God of Israel? Wouldn't you just say, praise your God, if you're an Israelite? This is Matthew's indication, and and as I understand it, it would have been understood by a Jewish audience. This is Matthew saying, these are not Jewish people. There's a lot of non-Jews in this crowd. I'm sure there were some Jews there, but this was a largely non-Jewish crowd who were coming to see Jesus, and Jesus is ministering to them, and they are praising the God of Israel as opposed to praising their false idols and their false gods. Jesus called his disciples to them, and he said, I have compassion for these people, for they have already been with me three days, and they have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. And his disciples said, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. The loaves and the fish which we had given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and they ate In turn to the people, and they all ate and were satisfied. And afterwards, the disciples picked up seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was 4,000 men, besides the women and children. And after, Jesus sent the crowd away, and he got into the boat and went to the vicinity of Magadan. Is this a repeat story? That's the first question I would ask. We just had the feeding of the 5,000. Why are we getting this story again? Some people have said, well, you know, it's just different people wrote different parts of of the Bible and they kind of meshed it all up together. And so one person wrote a story where Jesus had 5,000 people and somebody else wrote a story where Jesus wrote 4,000, but it's the same thing. That's always just boggled my mind because like who who thinks that that's when they, let's say that the Bible was written 300, 400 years after Jesus. That's what some people claim. I think it's one of the most ridiculous claims there is, but let's say that that's the case. You're putting it together. Don't you pick one and leave out the other? Uh, 5,000 sounds better than 4,000, we'll leave the 4,000 out. Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel say, both say that Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 and a crowd of 4,000. Both Mark's gospel and Matthew's gospel give definitively different accounts of both events. Uh, Matthew, uh, Mark's gospel actually makes it clear that there are different seasons happening. This happened at different times of year. Matthew makes it clear that the details are different. The, the amount of food available is different. There's fewer people but more food available. Uh, th- there's different amounts collected at the end. There, there's, one of the things is who has compassion? Who, who is the crowd? Mark's gospel makes it clear they are Gentiles. Matthew's gospel hints that they are Gentiles. Uh, who has compassion for the needs with the feeding of the 5,000? The disciples have compassion. With the feeding of the 4,000, the the non-Jewish crowd, the disciples kind of don't care. It's Jesus that has compassion. Man, you start asking those questions and then you start to think, well, what if there are people that I care about, the 5,000, the Jewish people, and I don't care about the 4,000, the non-Jewish people? And you could fast forward that to say, hey, what if I care about people within the church, but I don't care about people outside the church, but Jesus cares about them? Or you could say even with Jews and non-Jews, there are Christians who put such an emphasis, and we'll talk more about this when we get into Matthew 24 and the prophecy in the end times, but there are Christians who seem to put, they care greatly about the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, and they don't care at all about Palestinians, some of whom are Christians, who are suffering under the present situation. But Jesus cares about them. So who's the crowd? These are non-Jewish people. Who has compassion? The disciples don't. Jesus does. The disciples didn't care about the woman. They just said, you know, heal her, so she'll stop annoying us. Sometimes, let's be honest about it, Christians don't care about the things God cares about. Sometimes, let's be honest, we we care that God would take care of us or the people we care about, but there are whole groups of people out there that we could just care less about. And it's going to be different for different people. Some Christians don't care at all about their political opponents. And this goes both ways. I know Christians who could care less about anyone that they label liberal, socialist, whatever. And I know Christians who could care less about anyone that they label as a conservative or MAGA or whatever. Jesus cares about all of them. What are the lasting results of all this? The woman's immediate needs were met. The immediate need was met. You know, Maslow has that hierarchy of needs. I believe in that. I believe that, that if I were to meet somebody who had been hit by a car, you know, they've broken leg, they've got cuts and bruises, right? They don't need me to teach them a Bible study. They need me to get an ambulance. I, I believe that's the case. You know, if somebody's dealing with depression, they don't need us to say, you know what, just just turn your eyes on Jesus, you'll be too blessed to be stressed. No, they need help from a mental health professional. I also believe once the immediate need has been met, then there is opportunity for long-term healing. You know, the immediate need the woman had was met, but there was long-term healing as her daughter was set free. The immediate need that the crowd had to have food was met, but any and all who placed their faith in Jesus, had long-term, eternal deliverance. They, they, they were fed for a day, but eternally saved. I promised that we would come back to this idea of the woman and Jesus comparing her to a dog. I'm going to say first of all, that we have to be careful not to project our current situation onto a totally different situation. It was humorous. So this last week, I was scrolling through Twitter and one of the things that I follow on Twitter, I I pretty much 100% I use Twitter for sports and I follow Mariners uh, writers, Seahawks writers, baseball writers in general. I love baseball and so, you know, I use Twitter primarily to follow sports reporters. But I also follow uh, local news you know, Oregon Live, uh, some of the local TV stations, and I follow the Portland Pickles. And because I followed the Portland Pickles, this this video came up of somebody who went to a Portland Pickles game, and they took video, and there were three placards up, K, and then two Ks that were turned around facing, uh, you know, backwards, like they'd been written backwards. And this person was like, what is this? Because it says KKK and she's tagging the Pickles, and she's tagging all of the, the Pickles sponsors that have billboards up near this KKK. What's going on? What is happening? And, and then there were, at first, you know, you could see other people going, oh my goodness, what is this? Because they're all getting triggered. This is just, somebody has put up a KKK placard, and there's hidden white supremacists at the Portland Pickles games. And then predictably and amusingly, you started to see comments going, oh, first baseball game I see. Oh, You've never, kept, you've never kept a baseball scorecard, you know, and people began to explain. In baseball scoring, a K is a strike. And there's these scorebooks. People go to the games and they'll, or they'll watch baseball at home and they'll keep a scorebook. It's something people like to do. I've never understood it, but people like to do it. And if you mark a strikeout, it's a K. If the K is backwards, that means that the uh, batter was struck out looking meaning he did not even swing the pitcher pitched and it went You know right into the strike zone and the batter didn't even bother swinging which is considered an even more impressive strikeout So there were three strikes the pitcher had, had three strikes or three strikeouts. Excuse me And I I, I did appreciate the uh, the one comment where somebody said, oh, I hope the pitcher gets another strike <laughs> You know it was just like like their understanding but what happened was somebody took something from their context projected it onto another context. There are those who talk about women as if they're dogs. There are those who use that terminology towards women in a misogynistic way, but that's not what's going on. What Jesus is doing is saying, hey, if you have your family at the table and there's food there that's meant for your children, and remember dogs, you know, are, are, are you know, been around domesticated for a long time, but Jesus says, you know, hey, you, you take the bread that's meant for your your children, and you, you take it away from them and you throw it to the, to the animals. The people of Israel were the ones that God had made promises to and covenants with. They were his people. So Jesus is saying, can you imagine if God made promises to his people and then took the blessings that were meant for them and just gave it to whoever? And so he's not speaking like saying, oh, woman, you're just a dog, you're not worthy, but he's, he's trying to say, like, I'm trying to work through this, and the woman makes that great response, like, you know, even a dog gets the crumbs. This is, this is understandable. I am not Jewish. I'm not. That's uh, one, one of the things I'm not. As far as I know, I'm not Jewish. My, my mom, we don't know anything about my, my mom's dad, so who knows? Maybe I am, but I, as far as I know, I'm not. God in his grace didn't just stop with the Jewish people. He he extended his grace to all people. And he was always going to do it. It wasn't like this is a surprise to anybody. You can go read the Old Testament prophecies. But first he went to his own people. And I think it's the same principle for us. There's a statement made to Israel. Jesus is saying, hey, I came to you first, and you have rejected me at every turn. So now he heals a non-Jewish person, and he goes and he feeds the crowd that's not Jewish, because they accept him. First, I go to my family. First, I go to my community. First, I go to the people within the church, And, and I do what I have to do there, and I handle my obligations there. But there comes a time When if people are just rejecting, if people inside the church are rejecting Jesus, if people inside my family say, I don't want anything to do with you, then he says, all right, it's time to move on. And at some point, the nation of Israel, in large part, said, we don't want Jesus. So the original Christians, all Jewish, the the disciples are all Jewish. This idea that the Bible is somehow anti-Jewish is astonishing to me. Paul was Jewish. Every one of the writers except Luke was Jewish. But there comes a time where you say, all right, are, do Jewish people still come to faith in Jesus? Absolutely. 100% they do. The pastor who performed my wedding ceremony is Jewish, became a Christian in high school. Okay? So Jewish people still 100% become Christians. And the Bible is not anti-Jewish. I, uh, I feel so strongly about that. But the point I'm making is this. There comes a point where you just got to say, we got to leave the things behind. This is a conversation that pastors my age and younger are having constantly because we are wrestling with a generation of the church, quote-unquote, the organizational church, that seems devoted to nationalism or politics or social causes and not to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's going to come a point where we say, leave them behind. We're going to focus on reaching the lost. But all of this discussion comes because we asked questions. Let me tell you, you could read through the Bible, And you could just say, okay, Jesus healed a woman. It was kind of weird. He had this weird conversation with her. But in the end, he healed her. Uh, Jesus feeds 4,000. You know, he fed 5,000 before. That was more impressive. But 4,000 is pretty cool. I'm going to move on to the next thing because uh, I understand that better. But the more I ask questions, the deeper I will get. And I think that this is applicable to all people. If you're not a Christian, you will hear all kinds of things said about Christianity. Christians believe this. Christians don't believe that. Let me encourage you to ask questions. Go to the Christian that you trust the most and say, "I hear this about your faith." what do you say? My email is Adam at faithonhill.com. If you're not a Christian, and you, I encourage you to ask questions. If you are a Christian, And you are studying the Bible, but maybe you're trying to wrestle through, like we talked about last week, what's human traditions and what's actually what God wants. Or you're reading your Bible and you say, I don't understand this. Ask more questions. When I started to study the Bible for myself, I was in high school. And one of the great things I'm so thankful for was I had a, a Bible study that I started going to that some upperclassmen boys, I was a freshman in high school, and some upperclassmen boys they would uh, lead this Bible study. And so every Wednesday morning I showed up early and they let me come and it was really cool and we would just read through the Bible together and then if we had questions, what would we do? We'd say, well, let's pray about it and then we would go ask somebody and then the next week somebody would come back and say, yeah, I got an answer, maybe a parent, a pastor, another Christian that they knew and then we'd work through the answer together, right? Ask more questions. If you're not a a Christian, Ask more questions. What did the woman do? She's coming to Jesus, and instead of turning away, she kept asking and kept asking. What are we doing right now as we read through the Bible? We're asking, we're asking, we're asking. Lord, give us understanding. I believe that the Lord answers that prayer because it's a prayer of humility. It's a prayer of seeking. It's a prayer of wanting to know him. And I want to pray that over us right now. God, wherever the people who are with me, who are listening, who are watching, are at, I pray that you would stir up questions in their heart and that you would point them to the answers that are found in you. I pray that in the name of Jesus, who is the true Savior of the world. Amen. God bless you. May your week be great, filled with the knowledge and the grace of God.